Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Friday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is May 8th. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I'm doing good. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Birthday podcast. That's all we it's are a, now. Birthday podcast. It's a big day one. It's one of the hosts' birthday for a birthday pod. <laughs> Internet's already brutal. This is the the, the, the perils of a mid-morning part podcast you know we got zoom meetings school meetings going on all over this house right now so the wi-fi may be spotty but we are delayed we had a little schedule conflict thursday night um figured it'd be you know it's not the most time sensitive we're doing a hopefully a good ben crenshaw spotlight today so we figured we'd bump it we'll be at our freshest bixby loaded up best this morning and uh release it by lunch on friday yeah, I that, just got a fresh shipment of Bixby. My subscription came. I think I've timed up the subscription perfectly. Like Mine came literally the day I poured the last beans of the prior one into the grinder. And I was getting anxious. I didn't know, you know, I thought there might be a gap. But I think I'm timed up see, as we fiend our way through quarantine on coffee. See, that's kind of like what I think is one of the greatest golf achievements. My What's favorite that? thing is when I end the round like with one T on the last hole in your pocket or yeah. what do you mean? Okay. Okay. That's a good, ah, I never, I never thought that way. I, I love it because then I come home cause I always have T's in my pockets. Yeah. It drives my wife crazy. They're right? everywhere. They, yeah. She's like, why, why are all these T's everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they're just piles all over the house. <laughs> Um, uh, so my favorite is what I end with like one, I, I yeah. like the one problem I run into is if it breaks on the last hole, I don't have something to fix the ball mark. Okay. Okay. But it you, is my favorite thing when I have, you no don't teeth. use a, you don't carry a divot repair tool or anything like that. No, or, no. Okay. Tease the best, the tease the best tool. I gotcha. Those I gotcha. divot retool, repair tools, a lot of times promote bad technique, bad repair. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. No, that's dicey then. Then you look like a putz if you're up on the green and you're empty pocket and you got nothing. I mean, it's a, t it's a fine line you got to walk there, that's, I guess. That's when I get my, my keys out. I use a car key then. Oh, interesting. Okay. Then, I, then I'm ready to go. Do you have your keys in your pockets when you play? Well, I'll just grab it out of the bag. It's just well, well, then at that point, can't you get a tee out of the bag? Well, I'm going to need the keys before I need the next tee. Okay. Gotcha. All right. You've thought of this through, I can tell. Huh. All right. I, t I take pride in, be in grabbing the right amount of tees for the round of golf. <laughs> Interesting. So your mind is a funny place. I like it. But you've got all the details considered. Um, 
all right. So we will uh, bump kind of news discussion to Monday, more of a regular episode on Monday. Uh, so this doesn't go 18 hours on Crenshaw. What news do we have? Just everyone getting hollering about VJ. I got a text earlier in the week that that was coming, that <laughs> he had signed up for some web events or KFT events, whatever they call it now, and that there would be outcry. But I don't know that I expected guys, you know, calling him a piece of garbage or trash or whatever Brady Schnell called him. Uh, so we'll talk. Well, go ahead. It's very conflicting. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I, I can find myself on e- on either side of the coin with it. We'll pretty. talk about it Monday, but I think I think it's bad on multiple fronts from both sides. Yeah. I, VJ should be doing it. Let's not call him a piece <laughs> of garbage. Let's you know. Uh, we'll talk about that on Monday. The match is official. The uh, champions for charity. We got Peyton, Tom. Phil and Tiger at Medalist on May 24th, which I believe is a Sunday after the first one at Seminole. The, the stage trash talk has begun. Yeah, seriously. They definitely, sp- we'll talk about it on Monday. They definitely <laughs> split up those teams to give guy like Peyton's going to drag Tiger along in terms of banter, and Phil will drag, you know, the automaton, that robot that is Tom Brady along, right? Um, so we'll Schedule. talk about that. Up. NFL oh, schedules are out. Schedules. I saw they you. Can't, they were pronouncing it wrong all night. Trey Wingo's coming on. He's called hard K. Schedule. It's schedule, Trey. Uh, any reaction to that? I like our early season schedule. It could give us uh, give us some hope as a Bears fan. We could get off to a hot start. We aren't playing you, that first place schedule in it like like we did last year. <laughs> it's one of Were the you brilli- guys the opener last year. Packers is that, yeah. is that right? Okay. It was a, it was a, just a thrilling game, you know, where like a high scoring affair. <laughs> yeah. Mitch was just abysmal. God, he stunk <laughs> in that game. <laughs> <laughs> it's just un- think, think about I'm, the defense think ahead. about the bears defense where you're like holding one of the greatest quarterbacks in the league to like just stifling them and you've got a guy that and just giving short fields and you got a guy that just cannot do anything yeah it's gotta be disheartening i think i saw someone tweeted us that the bears and browns play the first preseason game of the year wow should we do go to that? Just some garbage. It probably won't happen. Probably won't have fans or whatever. You know, we're talking mid-August. Maybe has fans. I do you don't think know. we could Optimistic. get press credentials? <laughs> Just like the fourth strainer playing for 89, 20, 90% of it, you know? Uh, that would be kind of a fun podcast. Make some KFT parallels or something like that. Uh, anything else on the schedule? It looks like... They're clearing the decks for Master Sunday. There are no CBS games at 1 o'clock on what would be Master Sunday, November 15th. I got a few messages about U.S. Open Sunday, the 20th, maybe, I think it is, that Fox, the early round stuff will be on FS1, and then kind of the last conclusion looks like could be on Fox with only one late game on Fox, late NFL game on Fox, which could be cool. I, I don't know what that means, last six holes. Nine holes, something on uh, at Wingfoot on Fox could be the case, but we're just reading the tea leaves based on the NFL schedule. We're we're, we're now you know five minutes into news. We said we weren't doing it. I was going to say next Sunday is going to be cool with uh, with that Seminole match leading into the Last Dance. It's going to feel like a pretty normal day. Yeah, that's not a bad observation. 
Maybe. It's Sunday. Like somewhat of a sports day. You Sunday know? with some diversion, some uh, you know, content and, to consume. And variety and two things. Like we have yeah. we have not been given more than one thing. I mean, right now we have, you know, NBA, NHL playoffs, golf and full swing. Yeah. Stinks. All right. We beat Trinity we sh- Forest. Somebody tweeted at me uh yesterday was like it hadn't rained in a while in Dallas. It was oh, it was no. seventy eight degrees with twenty two mile an hour winds, and it would have just been ah, oh, that's a shame. Just bad luck all around for that's for Trinity, Trinity. Forest. Yeah. Just yeah. Okay, let's. Uh, should we do ten more minutes on tacos? Any desire to no, do that? No, I'm, okay. I'm good. <laughs> we got a lot of feedback on that the other day. All right, uh, let's get into Ben. Do you want to do Bixby? Bixbycoffee.com slash shotgun start. I don't know if it's shot slash, but subscribe to our blend. It's never a better time to just be fueling up on coffee. Uh, you know, golf is back. Playing golf, I should say. So I don't know. I'd say coffee golf in a way is back. So shotgun start blend at Bixby Coffee. Proceeds portion of it supports the podcast. They have been great partners from day one. Um, any, anything else to add on that? We've done. You can cancel anytime. We may do a giveaway at some point. We'll see. You can cancel anytime. It roasts that day, and it's at your doorstep. Usually about three days, maybe sometimes faster for me. But yeah, it's it's on your doorstep like two to three days later. Freshest coffee you can get. Yeah, and you still got to do your cold brew. You've been teasing this. This is like the Jazzy J deep dive. You're cold, doing an Instagram story on your cold brew method. You just keep kicking it down the road. It's spent too cold here. You're kicking the carafe down the road. All right. I'll try, maybe try and do it this week. Okay. Too cold. Uh, you, the external temperatures outside have to be appropriate for you to be making, doing your cold brew tutorial? Yeah. I don't like, well, I don't like waking up and drinking something really cold when my house is really cold in the morning. From and I have to go outside well, with just the dog. Do the tutorial for the people. The people live in a lot of different locales. They don't all live in Chicago. Well, this maybe is, you know it's got to be convenient for me. I'm not. <laughs> What's the threshold for cold brew? What is it, like sixty-seven and a half degrees yeah, outside? Yeah, I like What's to have the... like a good stretch. It's got to have like I, I make enough for four days. It's got to be a good stretch of weather for the cold brew. Okay. All right. There you go. Let's dive into Ben Crenshaw. So uh, he won the vote over, close vote, over Bernhard Lahner. Lahner. People are getting mad at my pronunciation. Lahner. They just, they just say you don't pronounce the G. Uh, Tom Kite. And who was the fourth one? Uh, Nick Whatever. Price. Okay. Nick it Price. It was a really absolute... close one. They were all in the 20 percentiles. Oh, interesting. And even ballot. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Crench- Crenshaw wins. I would just say Crenshaw's, which was a revelation to me doing this. Crenshaw, I don't know if it's because he was the 99 Ryder Cup. He won the 95 Masters. Like, that's a part of our lives. That I thought he was younger than he is. I'd say Crenshaw's on the very outer edges of like the generation we wanted to spotlight, the earliest edges. I didn't realize he was so early in the, you know, such a competitor in the 70s and maybe that that's uh, that's a naive millennial speaking i understand that but i I thought he was just the 95 masters 99 Ryder cup made him feel more of a the later generation mostly yeah i i I agree with that i think also because he was so prolific at it in his youth it wasn't one of those things where if he had if he had been 
kind he was kind of a different tour pro and i guess we'll get into this more when we do yeah. uh, but he's a different where he was immediate sensation so if yeah. he had been 30 doing that he would have been late 70s into the 80s yeah which yeah. would have aligned well with like Curtis Strange and all that but yeah. because he was so prolific at a young age he kind of burst onto the scene yep so just just that caveat at the front end i'd say this is the very leading earliest edge of players for the generation we're focusing on mostly probably a little savvy coming later but Mm -hmm. all right let's let's get into it savvy and him match up really well yep um all right ben crenshaw little ben gentle ben those are his kind of nicknames so this little ben's the putter right Yeah, little ben's the putter but they still call him little ben too okay um Jaime Diaz from Sports Illustrated article after he won in uh, 96. If ever anyone should have had... 95. 95, my bad. If ever anyone should have had an easy road in golf, it was Ben Crenshaw. He was born with a transcendent talent, guided from boyhood by a master teacher, blessed and blessed with a warm, humble manner, a handsome face, and a sharp mind. And he wielded, with perhaps the smoothest putting stroke ever, his own version of a wonder boy, Little Ben. The game simply had to be good to Ben Crenshaw. But competitive golf was never easy, and with uh, with Crenshaw's talent came massive expectations. When he finally encountered failure, the shock led him to question the gifts his teacher Harvey Pennock had implored him to trust. Somehow, too quickly, uh, Crenshaw's road turned rough. When he won, it was because he was supposed to. When he lost, he disappointed destiny. Crenshaw found out how heartless the game can be. That's a great... It would appear to be like a Diaz column the week after he won the 95 Masters. And after reading on Crenshaw for like seven, eight hours, it was, you know, that's towards the end of our research. It's like a really good encapsulation. Good way to lead off. Yeah. He, uh, so... Absolute sensation. I'm going to run down some facts here. Uh, grew okay. up in Austin, was just an unbelievable junior golfer. Yeah. Um, and I think you've got more on details of that. Unbelievable collegiate golfer, played at UT, um, won three individual national championships the three years he did it. Um, three years he played, he turned pro early. Uh, he also won the Transmiss, the Porter Cup, the Western Am, the Sunny Anna, the Northeast. He won the Southern Am twice, the Eastern Am twice. He was a three-time Haskins Award winner, which goes That's to the crazy. best college golfer of, uh, in, a, in a year. Um, he turned pro in 73. He wins. Could that happen today? No. You probably turn pro, right? Yeah. If you win it twice, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. think about, like, you know, like Matthew Wolf had an unbelievable year. I think Hovland won that year. Yeah, I think. I mean, could you even do it, even if you wanted to? But uh, even if you could, I'm not sure you're around three three years to do it. I, I don't even know if you could though. To even there's just so deep, so competitive. I feel like Maverick McNeely had a chance, but he just he didn't back up. Like he had he had a great sophomore year. Yeah, and uh, he just didn't. But um, you got to do it as a freshman. Yeah, you have to do it as a freshman. Okay. He Go qualified for the U.S. Open at 18. Before he was uh, at Austin, before yeah. he went to UT. Yeah. Uh, low amateur, which was for yes. a long time the, the youngest low amateur. Um, Do you have who broke that? I don't. I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I just, I didn't because we're reading that. old articles at this point, right? So it's like a record at that point. But okay, go ahead. 
Turned pro in 73. He wins Q school by 12 shots immediately Crazy. after turning pro. 12 shots. Q school. 12 clear of everybody. Where was that? In Boca? Uh, somewhere in Florida, right? The Q school? I forget. Or Myrtle. Myr- Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach. Hard courses in Myrtle Beach. He won by 12. Some, some tough setup. Go ahead. He won, won his first start on the PGA Tour. He's one of five players to ever do that. Marty Fleckman, Jim Benep, Robert Gomez, Garrett Willis, and Russell Henley are the other ones. I think uh, he was the only, yeah, the second to do it at he, the time. He was right? the second to do it at the time. What an illustrious list he joined there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He finished second as next start. At the, did you get anything about that tournament? I got a lot on that. Crazy tournament. We'll we'll, we'll go into that. That's a crazy tournament. I kind of want it to come back. Two weeks in Pinehurst. It's kind of crazy. All Uh, right, let's go. He he won in three decades, and in in total, he won two majors, two masters, obviously. He had 17 other PGA Tour wins outside of the majors, one in one Euro Tour win in the Irish Open. Irish Open. Um, He was the 99 Ryder Cup captain four Ryder Cups as a player. Um, so he played, did a lot of his damage before the world golf rankings existed, but there was yes. the McCormick golf rankings. I saw that. Which he was in. Which the- McCormick also is responsible for the eventual world rankings too. Mark mm-hmm. McCormick, you know, okay, go ahead. So he was in the top 10 of this from 76 through 81. And then he spent 80 weeks in the top 10 of the OWGR from 87 to 89. So he was a top 10 player for large, you know, probably seven to 10 years. Um, let's see, 87, he finished in the top 10 of every single major. He finished in T fourth in the first three and then finished T seventh at the, at the PGA that year. Uh, one of, you know, about 15 players that have ever done that. Ricky, uh, yeah, Ricky, one of them. He has the worst playoff record in the history of the PGA Tour, 0 and 8. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's his. You ready for his uh, his peak tenure run? Yeah, I'm fascinated if you were able to squeeze this in. There's multiple. I mean, who knows when it is? Go ahead, give it to me. So we'll do the majors first. I, I chose 75 to 84, which his best golf was really when he was in his 20s. Yeah, could could argue as Mike Clayton talked about. With Seve, his best Seve's brother saying his best golf was when he was playing, you know, fifteen, sixteen. I mean, Crenshaw's best golf may have been eighteen to twenty-two. You Crenshaw know, says uh, that himself. Yeah, yeah, we got a quote or two. Um, so, but pro, professional peak run is you're going seventy-four. Do you say seventy-five to eighty-four? Seventy-five to eighty-four. Okay. So he makes thirty-seven starts in majors. He has one win, seventeen top tens, five runner-ups. Two thirds and eight miscuts cuts. So sixteen percent of the time he finished in the top two of majors uh during that ten years. Twenty-two percent of the time in the top three, forty-six percent of the time in the top ten. Um, you know, Sands the you know, in twenty-two percent of the time MC. So a little higher MC than say like a Faldo figure, similar top ten percentage. Those those runner ups were were kind of heartbreaks over and over yep. again um, yes, and kind of add up to what if like thing. 
close top tens, not just like like runner ups that were on the seventy first hole, right? You know, seventy late Sunday runner ups, not just T seven where he finished eight shots behind. There were some of those too, but he had several close top tens. I would just are you you still are you done with yeah the peak? Well, okay. I'll do the PGA Tour kind of peak too. I would just add, I would just you know the major peak you just described excluded the one year he finished top ten at all four like yes. they did the Ricky thing like that's it's hard to boil it down you know there's a lot of major contention and major qual you know major relevancy over the course of his career maybe he has only two major wins those two masters but like. It's hard to make it cram it into ten years at the majors. You just excluded the what may be his most competitive top to bottom year at the majors. Yeah, and I, I think that was the that's tough. But he had so many runner ups early. It, yeah. If you if you if yep. I went to extend it there, what happened was I lost like four runner up finishes. So maybe we could say he had like a fifteen year peak at the majors. Maybe I don't know. It's it's hard to find a ten year window. Uh, yeah and i mean it's tough i think he because of augusta yeah i think he the the thing he had was he always could play it was one of those things where he played augusta well so he always had that kind of he had that longevity in majors because of that he was an augusta style player and i think his game did change dramatically he had a um a bout with a disease um yep which which kind of derailed the middle of his career. He spent essentially two years where they didn't know what it, what it was. And then, you know, he lost a little bit of his power from it. Um, Graves disease, lost a lot of weight, didn't know why he was losing weight. He's like, I can't, I can't eat enough. He had New York, most recently, New York Mets shortstop, Jose Reyes, had oh, to really? deal with Graves' disease. Okay. Because there's a, there's a, I found a New York Post article with Ben Crenshaw, and it was about Jose Reyes's, you know, and oh. they they called Crenshaw to talk about, you know, okay. how, what he went through. So, ten uh, year PGA Tour peak run, same same years, seventy uh, six. He finished second on the money list. He won, uh, and it, he won on the year. That was his one Euro Tour win year too. So he would have won four times that year. So he won the Irish Open. I think I saw he had runner up at Australian Open. Like mm-hmm. he was a world player. I mean. Primary PGA Tour player, but he went outside the borders of the U.S. Right. Yeah, so he he had 247 PGA Tour starts during that period. He had 20, uh, 13 wins, one major, eight other PGA Tour wins, one Euro Tour win, and three other wins, which include like the Texas Open and uh, and a Mexican Open. He might have been battling Club Pro guy down there. <laughs> I saw he had three Texas State Open wins. Yeah, after he turned pro, was that common then? Like he's a full fledged PGA Tour pro. We're not talking about the Texas Open, you know, San Antonio, like going and playing like the Texas State Open or the Illinois Open. That's like a mix of you know AMs club pros. I wonder if that was common. I think it was more common then because the purses. I mean, he won. He only won twenty five grand when he won the his first event um and i think the purse sizes weren't as big so you know it's a a tournament you could probably it probably was played in austin i didn't dig into it but i mean imagine that if you're just some schlub i mean obviously a very good player in the texas state open all of a sudden you have ben crenshaw maybe like the jack next jack nicholas playing in that event against you (laughs) you know i think i think it was way more common then 
Yeah, I, I could see it, especially in Texas, you know. And and it was early in his career. It was before he was like super, super superstar, you know. And I think the money was so much different going from the 70s to the 80s, you know. Yeah. And yep. it, it, so in total, he had 27 major top 10s in 21 years, which would you would kind of bookend as his 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 prime. Yep. Which is pretty impressive. Over one top 10 a year for 21 years is pretty damn good, especially considering, you know, two year kind of hiatus in there. Very good. Those are, those are the details. You want to go into Uh, junior golf? Nuts and bolts. I like it. I mean, there's, there's gentle Ben. There's a lot to talk about with him. Uh, we will try to keep it manageable. We know we'll miss some things and, uh, you know, you can holler at us about it. What we missed in the comments or, you know, in DMs, as they say. Uh, all right. Oh, one other so, note. Fast fact. Go ahead. You know, one go of ahead. the one of the greatest arch- golf architects of all time, too. Yeah, I think, like, how we... We'll talk about that in legacy discussion, I guess, too. It, the architecture thing has to be a big part of who he... What he's done for the game and who he is as a professional. Especially when we're... Given the context of who we've spotlighted already like faldo design couples design that like a lot of these guys are trying to do that and crenshaw i would say you know designs a sub- subjective awesome often but like objectively is 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 a giant in that business and much better than those guys i would say uh okay um you've kind of hit a lot of the amateur stuff i mean he was low am at twice at the masters low am at the u.s like the guy was an 18 year old playing competitive golf at the very highest highest level not just you know around austin but we'll get into a little bit of the personality little ben is the putter it was a rear shafted relic that crenshaw's dad charlie gave to ben for his 15th birthday and kind of kept it for a very long time off and on his 15th birthday it was a wilson you know know what happened what it got Go stolen. Is that what it was? I didn't. I didn't find that. So it, he won. It, it, they talked about it. I just because it was the Western Open. I kind of dove yeah. into the Western Open a yeah. little bit. It got yeah. stolen a couple weeks before that. Uh, that he oh. won in '92. I think I vaguely remember that. So his '95 Masters win. They talk about how his buddy at Cleveland Classics made like a whatever a prototype of it. It like reminded it, like he tried to make one as close to it as he could, and that was part of the mystique of the '95 Masters one. So I was wondering what happened to the original. Yeah, okay. it got stolen in Austin um, so, in, in 1992. So it was a Wilson 8802 blade putter. His dad bought him for his 15th birthday. Um, not a lot on the like. His dad was an attorney in Austin. His mom, not a ton of like. His mom died on his third year as a pro, 1974, Pearl Crenshaw. She was a sixth grade school teacher, died of a heart attack, so a sudden death. Definitely a tragedy early in Ben's pro career. His dad remarried to Roberta Bobby, who was a pretty wealthy philanthropist in the Austin area. Um, Just a little bit on the personal. Uh, He did a lot of the... It was General Ben. I found this interesting. It was Dick Collins, an Austin-American statesman, columnist, or writer, who called him Gentle Ben, first person to call him Gentle Ben when he was in high school because there was a TV TV series about a kid and a bear, and it was the bear that was called Gentle Ben. The name seemed appropriate at the time. Not the kid. The bear was Gentle Ben. Uh, 
Uh, and, and later on, even I think an Alan Shipnuck article this year recently is this April talks about how like there was a bit of like irony to the gentleman because he was he was a bit of a red ass on the course, right? Off the course, he was like just just the most popular, gracious, warm person. But you know, you watch some of these. I watched the '84 Masters. He's taking the name, Lord's name in vain a little time. There's some curses. There's some shot. Like he gets angry. I saw a snip, uh, uh, like a little thing in a article. It was actually about the uh, the losing the putter, and it was like this is a you know he, he's never been without the putter, and he said he said something like the only time I've been without uh, little Ben was when it was I was it was I was pulling it from trees. <laughs> that's right <laughs> there was another one in uh that's a, I, I did read that and he lost there was a like a caddy confidential or a caddy article in si i think it was of uh the caddy found the wrong ball and they played the hole with the wrong ball it was like all yellow it had to be like said it had been lost at riviera for five years because it was yellowed over they talk about he gets dane they find out at the end of the hole and Crenshaw yells, it like echoes through the eucalyptus. You gotta be shitting me! Like screams at the caddy. It's like I deserve to be yelled at. Like so, a little bit of a uh, gentle Ben. He was, uh, he could be a hothead on the course. Uh, extremely gracious, calm off the course, though. All right, so that's the origin of the nickname. Um, just a legend around Austin as a junior. He was like shooting in the low seventies as a teenager. Um, in his senior year at Austin High, he won 18 of 19 tournaments that he entered. Unbelievable. Here's a here's a quote from uh, Terry Jastro, and this was oh, in yeah. a Jenkins article. It's about Pennick. Uh, now, if you were a okay. young if you were a young player in Texas and thought you were pretty good, all you had to do was watch Ben swing and see yeah. how much farther he hit it, and wonder uh, to wonder about your own ability. Here's another one from same Jastro. It's, yeah, just putting it in context. There was something else that convinced you. A bunch of us would be on the practice range beating balls. With everybody else, Harvey Pennick would spend an hour. But when he got around to Ben, he would look at him for a minute or two, smile, and tell him to just go play golf. That's definitely a theme we'll talk about throughout. Is like just natural feel, go play. And then kind of a few times in his career where he got sideways was thinking too much about his swing. Um, so he won 18 and 19 tournaments his senior year of high school at Austin High. I think about uh, 18 of 19. <laughs> I mean, so then that summer, before he's even at UT, he goes to Hazeltine, a terror of an open course. I think that was Jenkins. One, and at one 18, thing to note, one like yeah. in, in everybody talks about how gracious Crenshaw was, how good of a sport Crenshaw was, how he'd be happy for other people after they won. Um, yep. And you see this throughout... When it, he needed two putts to qualify for the U.S. Junior yeah, um, as a, a kid, one. and what happened? He two putted, and then he called a penalty on himself because he said the ball moved when he addressed the putt. So, yep. like you know, as a kid at that age, it's I mean, it's pretty unbelievable that he called that penalty on himself. Was that Brookline? Maybe uh, the U.S. Junior? Maybe not. That might have been I think, a local. I think Texas it was a local qualifier. Okay. Okay. So yeah, he called the penalty on himself on the he needed, yeah on the last green. And what a, that was the difference. Um, that was just part of the legend. And we'll get to how Bobby Jones was sort of his icon. A little bit of Jones in that story. Uh, so he goes to Hazeltine as an 18 year old. He's lo- second long, youngest low amateur at the time uh, in the history of the U.S. Open, and he beat 
Arnold Palmer, Nicholas, and player in that uh, U.S. Open at Hazeltine. Uh, so he goes to college. He's like one thing with the so like writers love Ben Crenshaw. Oh, love Jenkins. Obviously, you know Jenkins is from Texas. You know, and this is this Texas phenom since he's like thirteen coming up. Everybody loves him. So like. Diaz, like they loved writing about this guy. They loved him, and he probably was a great, great human being to them off the course too. So easy to write, you know, glowingly about. So yeah. it was like a hard first round. He shot seventy five. He's like one of the leader, like seventy or seventy two was leading. I can't remember. And he was he was called in the press tent, and they asked uh, Ben. So the press guy goes, Ben, would you go through your card, please? The man oh, says, meaning Crenshaw to describe how he played each hole, the clubs he hit, the length of putts, and so on. Sure, said Crenshaw, looking down at the copy of his scorecard. And then he read it into the mic. Four, four, five, two. <laughs> the laughter interrupted him, and Crenshaw quickly caught on. He looked up from the scorecard and out at the crowd, embarrassed but smiling. I, I didn't mean to insinuate that none uh, none of you can read, he said. <laughs> and, it, and this is Jenkins. Crowds love a blonde, wee, embarrassed kid with a sense of humor. So that yeah. was like, that was the press's first, you know, meeting of Crenshaw at this U.S. Open. And they immediately fell in love because like he comes in, reads off his scorecard. Then he's embarrassed yeah. and, and kind of jokes. He makes a great, cracks a great joke. So that's a, that's from a Jenkins SI article. I mean, that was a major thing, obviously, before you had TV and a ton of internet with all the shot tracker. That was a big thing. They still make them do that at the Masters, by the way. The, the uh, green jacket who holds the press conference said, like, Tiger, would you go through your card at the end of the press conference and kind of blow by blow. Kind of cool. Um, all right. So, I mean, we don't need to go into his junior year too much. Just know he was a phenom. He's like shooting 71 as like a 15-year-old. People are, this guy's going to be good. So he gets to college. Um, Dave Williams, the head legendary coach at Houston, said, Crenshaw is a superstar already, one of the top 10 players in the world, amateur or pro. I think he'll be better than Jack Nicholas when he gets on tour. LeBron Harris, golf coach at Oklahoma State. USA another- winner. Uh, his son. Le- oh, LeBron this, Jr., right? He's a senior. Yeah. Also, uh, I, think, I don't, uh, maybe not. Gr- did did the dad win it too? I don't know. Also, the grandfather of the greatest NBA player of all time, LeBron. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the only other LeBron I've really ever encountered in my life, LeBron. Uh, I think, I think he's LeBron. I know they pronounce it very differently. Uh, <laughs> I just do that to be cheeky. I've got right. I've got some LeBron Harris uh, clubs. I have heard that. I've heard that. Uh, so he says he's another Jack Nicholas or Bobby Jones in that class. Eddie Marin's the pro at Bel Air. Uh, ben Swain is the type that will never stop repeating. It's like Sam Sneeds. It was there the first time he swung a cu- club, and it'll always be there. So we'll get into that a little bit. Some people thought the swing was too loose and long. But again, just natural swing. It's what he had from the start. Um, so he gets to college. You know, I, I, just a little bit more background. He was like obsessed with the whole amateur game, right? He's obviously like a, a student of the classics, a great student of history. Uh, he talks about being sort of in a trance when he played as a junior at Brookline, Shinnecock. He's like, when I got on those old East courses, I was like always 
kind of everything flew out the window. I was just like in love and in a trance, played well. Um, so this is just more background. Golf's an amateur game is what Crenshaw said. That's how it began and that's its backbone. I think we're getting in trouble these days. Well, let's do that on, on architecture. I think we're getting in trouble these days leaning more towards a professional game. I mean, so many courses are being built for professionals. It's not right. It's short-sighted. I guess when you get down to it, I'm a professional amateur. So just this is some context of his earliest days. And his enduring hero was Bobby Jones. And he goes, he's a man I love, but I've never met. Because Jones died in Atlanta when Ben was only 19. So, go ahead. You to get, to give some context about Crenshaw's game when he yeah. was young, um, Williams, the Texas coach, in an SI Houston. article. Houston, uh, right? Oh, Houston Williams? coach. Um said said this he said this it was about the ncaa championship uh he said this place is made for a masher who can putt that's crenshaw uh-huh. so think you know just long off the tee unbelievable putter right so we thought like i mean people our generation think of him as like little ben like this kind of short and smaller guy but he burst on the scene won a freshman ncaa title with the guy saying it was built for a masher and that's ben Right. He was never, he was, a, he, and obviously the disease in the middle of his career changed that style a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're now, let's get to Texas. We talked about how his love of the amateur. He won three NCAA of individual titles. You talked about that. One was a tie with Kite, which we'll go into in detail a little bit. And his last year at, he's Haskins Award winner all three times. His last year, he won 11 of 15 tournaments as a junior in college. This isn't like this isn't you know, a deli- senior this year isn't at Austin a- High, 11 of 15 tournaments during the time when college golf was really strong era of college That's golf. the thing is this was a great era of college golf, like Lanny Watkins. It, it, there was a lot of great college golfers at this at this time. Pierce, I think, yeah. uh, Eddie Pierce. That's a great uh, story, Eddie Pierce. Yeah, yeah. I saw Bill that Fields might be, just wrote a... It might be a, a flashlight, future I flashlight. I know. All right, so let's do freshman year, NCAA. 1971, you talked about Tucson National. It's made for a masher. That's Crenshaw. I got to go off topic here for a little bit. NCAA just sounded like a complete circus act here in the 70s. Did you read some of these details? Hey, I I love that SI would send a writer to cover it every year. It's pretty cool. And, And like they're like, this is an awesome, maybe the best amateur tournament out there. It's so fun. But NCAA officials were enjoying their the 71 NCAAs, Tucson Nationals, were enjoying their usual hoo-ha of internal politics, public relations, difficulties, and organizational buffoonery. They went bogey, double bogey, pick it up. This is Curry Kirkpatrick in SI. The NCAA, here, they couldn't find enough caddies. They couldn't open the practice greens or tees after 5 p.m., 5 o'clock. Play is like, come on, there's tons of guys there. You can't putt. After five, the NCAA turned simple rulings on the course into lengthy discourses. Play was so slow that Florida's Killian, who went off last, finished his route in a cool seven and a half hours. Holy. Hooray, hooray another NCAA fiasco, said Kill- he said. And while Watkins, Lanny, always apt at gentle criticism, commented, this place would be a, this would be a great tournament if it wasn't run by a bunch of jerks. College kids saying that about the NCAA. So Some that things night, never change. Yeah, yeah. Last night before the finals, 
Uh, Crenshaw was tex- in Texas. Were fif- Texas was 15 shots behind. Uh, Crenshaw was resigned to the team defeat because I guess we're out of it. But on the individual, Mills can't hold up. Pierce is tough, but I want to make All-America. I want to be the first freshman to win this thing. I'm going to set a record. It is said around Austin. This is crazy. I tweeted this today. Said around Austin that Texas left the Southwestern Conference Golf League just so Gentle Ben could play in more medal tournaments than the league allows. I might not have gone to Texas if they had stayed in, he admitted. And he had already become so something of a local legend with a bunch of 61s, impressive appearances in the U.S. Open. Two impressive appearances in the U.S. Open. So that, that was a cool anecdote from the Kirkpatrick article. That they maybe left the Southwestern Conference. I don't know if it's hyperbole. But more that that so that Ben could play more medal events than the conference allowed. There's also a fun anecdote about Charlie's dad saying, you need to go to Texas so you can stay close, UT, so you're close to Harvey. You know, hey, get out of whack. You want to be home and, and go see Harvey if anything happens. Um, so we go to the final day. They're Texas behind 15. Crenshaw wants to go for individual stuff. Crenshaw's, Crenshaw's teammate Kite, all but forgotten, Tom Kite is with them, started the Longhorn Stampede when he began with four birdies and eagle. He was, so Kite starts to charge. The team is coming back. Uh, Crenshaw, mashing it for all he was worth, caught and passed Mills and turned the tournament around single-handedly. It was Crenshaw against the whole NCAA now, and it seemed that all you could hear were shouts of hook em horns. This is in Tucson. I give him a 66. This is at the turn. I give him a 66, said Florida coach Bishop, as Crenshaw turned the front nine and three under. Then a Houston player was like, if we shoot par, we can still beat him. Houston's coach Williams just stared at the ground. I know him too well. This kid go. This kid could go for 62. It's all over. <laughs> Unreal. He's a freshman at Texas. And it was. The Longhorns, eight under, became the first team NCAA history to break par for the four rounds. But of course, it wasn't the Longhorns who did it. It was Gentle Ben alone. His 273, he ended up with a 65 on the last day. It was 15 under. As he came up the last fairway, the 19-year-old Crenshaw asked, what am I even doing here? The question no, it required no answer. He was right where he belonged. Just on a complete heater as a freshman. Wins first. I think he was the first ever freshman to uh, win the NCAA title. I mean, it's such a different time, too. Like, you know, freshmen, I don't know if freshmen were even allowed to play basketball at this point as a freshman. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, early like, 70s? You think about uh, Kareem at, at, uh, at UCLA. Think about the prospect of, and maybe it's hyperbole of a leaving a conference, potentially, just because some local legend could play. I don't know if that's true. Maybe, that's I don't f- think that's true. Fun to consider, though. I like the I like the story that's told around Austin. All right, uh, so seventy two, he wins again. This is more. This is where we. Can, I don't know if we want to save this for our kite one, but this is really a Crenshaw versus kite, and then we can go into the dynamic of those two, both being mentored by Harvey, both uh, from Austin, both from Austin, both playing at UT at the same time. For the past, this is Barry McDermott. Crenshaw wins again or ties individual polar opposite personalities. Totally. And they didn't get along. They were not friends. It was, it's presumed that they were like best boys and just rampaged through college golf, but they, cause they were both Harvey proteges, but they were very polar opposites. Didn't get along. Great. Kite was often very, very frustrated by Crenshaw. Crenshaw just kind of sailed through life. Didn't matter. I don't know if kite bothered him that much. They, they got along later in life. Later in life, absolutely. 
For the past three years, Barry McDermott, this is the writing, past three years, people have been predicting that Crenshaw, now only 20, would be the next Jack Nicholas or the new Arnold Palmer or the future Bobby Jones. He has a classic rhythmic swing, hits the ball with a crunch, and chips and putts with dexterity. Ben and Tom are complete opposites, said their teammate Brent Buckman. Tom is perfectionist. He goes out on the practice tee, hit balls and balls all day. If he doesn't hit each one perfectly, he'll get mad at himself and stay mad. The only thing Tom wants to do is beat Ben, but he gets just so close and then something happens. It used to bother me, said Kite. Said the adulation, he said of the adulation being heaped on Crenshaw while he, in fact, was leading the tournament and being largely ignored. It doesn't anymore. Everything you read is Crenshaw. He's got the charisma of Palmer, and it makes it that much more enjoyable to me if I beat him because I'm thinking he's got all those guys out there watching him and they're all missing all of my good shots. So this is another little bit of a circus NCAA. Kite complained it took almost six hours to play his round. That's, that's how long it takes now. His concentration was shattered on the first tee when he waited over an hour because the tee times were late. He got to the first tee and had to wait more than an hour to go. Unbelievable. He blasted the NCAA for the tournament, for the way they ran the tournament, stomped off for dinner. This is McDermott. Stomped off for a dinner of ground glass and poison. (laughs) So why was he upset? Just about every tournament we played and we finished 1-2, said Ben, in his motel room Friday night before the final round. He had missed the cut in this year's Open. So he'd missed the cut. And it was the first time he'd ever missed the cut in seven professional tournaments. He's still a sophomore at UT. Unreal. First missed cut in a professional event. And they thought this like burned him up and mo- motivated him. He lives and thinks golf so much of his walking, waking day, he admits that he has a hard time being serious about his schoolwork. I think it'll make I think it'll take me eight years to get my degree, he said. I'm just piddling around. It really is a farce. All through college, I've never had anything on my mind except golf. I can't get interested in anything else. Love that. It's a farce. <laughs> School's a farce, there, kids. <laughs> they were talking about I was the miscut at the open was on his mind, just burning him up. It's amazing <laughs> this is his first miscut and he's he's twenty pro, years pro old. Event. And he's played in seven. Seven of them. So his sophomore year is not, again, contrasting with Kite. It is not, he insists, a matter of style, particularly his own. Crenshaw hates to practice, and he pretends to know nothing of theory. Sometimes I get up to the ball and just think a little hook. But I don't think anything about where my hands are during the swing or stuff like that. You know, which may explain every now and then why he endures spells where his game are, you know, as vulnerable as a sandcastle in a rising tide. Kind of similar so, to Sandy Lyle. Even as a sophomore, he's like, you know, I just don't think about it. I was like, oh, I'm going to hit a little hook, but I don't think about my hands that much or stance. So this is coming down the stretch against Kite. Kite's in the clubhouse, 18th hole. After a tepid tee shot that nestled troublesomely near a tree, Crenshaw pull hooked his second shot far left of the 18th green. He's 40 yards from the pin and it's over. Kite's going to win. Only the courage of Palmer, the skill of Nicholas, and the touch of Jones could save him. Right? Kite knew better. He loped off to get a soft drink so that he could not see Crenshaw wedge weakly onto the green some 30 feet from the cup. So it's over. Kite's won, but no, Kite's like he walks away. So he he just kind of weakly wedges 30 feet away. Nor would he see Crenshaw wrap 
the putt boldly dead on line. It smacked against the back, back of the cup, popped straight up in the air, and fell in the hole for the tie, the individual tie with Kite. Here's Houston's John, John Mills. Is he unreal? Is he unreal? He's a god. I figured he'd get it up and down because he always does, does, Kite said later. I just don't know how he does it. Neither does Ben. He just does it. Fascinating. So Kite is finally going to get like his moment to beat Ben, win the individual title, and you know he makes a 30-footer on the last hole. It would be so frustrating. <laughs> Back-to-back uh, NCAA titles. Uh, 1973, I don't have a ton. He wins it again. You know, he's hyped as the greatest amateur record since Nicholas and the greatest amateur buildup since Nicholas. Uh, you know, for the record, third time he won the NCAA, he added 10 other championships, including the Western, the Southern, Northeast, Sunny Anna. You mentioned all those, and he won 11 of the 15 tournaments he entered. So one one thing of note. Do you want here? to talk about his decision to turn pro? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the year year before, he lost the USAM in the finals to Vinny Giles. Vinny Giles. Um, legend legendary amateur from virginia yeah um and uh so the next year he has to make a decision does he turn pro or does he play the amateur again and play the walker cup and if he doesn't turn pro he's got to wait another another full year till he could turn pro because the q school um deadline it's kind of nuts right it wasn't like today so you couldn't you couldn't turn pro in like January or November, like right? He just yeah. it doesn't operate that way. Um, so he has to skip the Walker Cup, skips the U.S. Amateur, and he turns pro, wins his first pro event. But again, <laughs> last 1973, won 11 of 15 tournaments. He entered a bunch of very prestigious amateur events, college NCAA championships, and that's his. We spent a lot of time on that, but I think that's like a major, major part of his story. Yeah, amateur game and, and gr- UT gr- legend. I mean, it's it's crazy to say because he didn't win the USAM, but right, he, arguably outside of Bobby Jones, the greatest amateur golfer. You don't have a career before you turn pro. That's not that. That's I don't know. Even commonplace where, where people are saying you're the next Nicholas. You have the charisma of Palmer. You're the next Nicholas. Like, I guess Tiger I, Tiger would be another one that. Yep. Tiger's yep. amateur record's probably better than Crenshaw's. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but again, we talk about a lot of these amateur careers, whether it's Sutton or Clampett, even last last uh, episode on the flashlight. But like this was a, a notch above. The hype, all these spotlights are on guys who are Hall of Famers or fringe Hall of Famers. Like they're great amateur players. But we're talking about someone who was a, a, a cut above as an amateur mm-hmm. and, and the hype kind of was commensurate with that all right so 1973 turns pro wins his first event what was it texas open texas right? open san antonio wins by four shots wins twenty five thousand. um obviously everybody this is friends again just to be clear this was after he won q school by 12 freaking shots as we alluded to at the start so just to give you an idea obviously in his home state of texas but most this is uh this is from an article I, the New York Times uh, write up after most of the game's great ga- uh, great names including Jack Nicklaus, Palmer, Weisskopf, and Trevino passed up on the uh, up the tournament, but Crenshaw lured a record crowd of more than twenty thousand to the final round, 
and the 60,000 total crowd for the week was the largest in the 44-year history of the of this event. So, amazing. So you're, I'm trying to like come up with a, and like he won some, some legendary like high school running back in Texas, right? Where obviously that's golf is big in Texas, football is bigger, football is bigger everywhere. But like, just a statewide legend, and he wins the Texas Open, drawing twenty thousand people. Fascinating. So, so he wins by four. Uh, I, I can't remember who was finished second. I didn't write it down, but that's, uh, that's fine. Next week, it, it, two weeks later, next start, he goes to the World Golf uh, World Open Golf at Pinehurst Number Two. This is the craziest tournament I've ever heard. This of. is great. One of these benefits of these spotlights is like that Nabisco thing we were talking about, where there seems like a tour championship. Thirty guys. This is a this is a fun tournament. Joe Day. $500,000 purse. Massive. Wasn't it a hundred grand maybe to the winner? Yeah. Something crazy. He, he won, he came in second and got $47,000 or something like that. 41. Richest 000. purse ever professional game. Joe day, put it together. The prior PGA commissioner or before there was, you know, a split. Go ahead. So it was an eight round tournament. 144 holes, two weeks in Pinehurst. Eight rounds. <laughs> Trevino didn't go. He's like, I'm not going for two weeks. I'm not going anywhere for two weeks. That's why he skipped it. So Miller Barber wins. Mr. Yep. X was his yeah. nickname. He's actually a really good player. Really good player. Really um, good player. So he said, uh, so Barber wins, but he said of the young man from Austin, uh, who is his principal challenger over Pinehurst number two course today, it may take time, but in my opinion, he's another Nicholas. He's the best that's come along since Nicholas. He's going to be the new gunner. I knew when I beat him that I'd done beat somebody. Second pro tournament ever for Crenshaw. Um, anything else you want to do on this event? Yeah. Oh. Just, all, these guys all skipped it. Nicholas skipped it. Miller, Weisskopf, Trevino, they all skipped it. And it kind of left, you know, Crenshaw a, a big, you know, it was kind of a dud of an event jenkins was there writing it up uh, and then mill you know crenshaw made it kind of a gave it brought some hype by charging at the end turns out a two-week eight-round event did not <laughs> hold people's attention uh he shot a 64 i think on piners too nobody ended up under par over the eight he rounds he went 18 strokes off the lead into the tie for second after the 64 uh, so, it said that this round under these conditions was probably the best ever on a course that has felt the cleats of the game's finest players for 50 years. So, and that's kind of where he gets into, you know, when I go back out east and play on some of the old historic courses, I get in this trance. And he talks about rounds at Pine Valley, Shinnecock. Yeah, like, like 65 that. at Shinne Shinnecock, something. I think 67 at Pine Valley, maybe. Yeah. Just he's just lights up. He loved going and playing great golf courses, and and that becomes a trend where he would just leave tournaments and and go play extra rounds at at great courses around in the area. Um. So one thing. Uh. So Jenkins wrote a SI article in '74. Um, yeah. Lee cover. Yeah. Crenshaw made the cover. This was a cover story. Cover of SI in 1974. Hasn't won a major. Kind of incredible. Go ahead. So Lee Trevino says he's got the best grip, the best setup, and the best swing I've ever seen. <sighs> Besides that, he's nice. Um, 
Johnny Miller. So after he beat Crenshaw to win his third term in a row, this is when Johnny Heater or Johnny Miller was on like just the heater of all heaters. I think this was in Arizona. Uh, he won those two tournaments yeah. and then he won a third in a row. Wow, what a player he is. I didn't think I could hold him off. He has to be the best for his age there ever was. His personality is good, uh, too good to be true. We may never know it, but d- down inside of him, there might be the cockiest killer there ever was. Cockiest killer. I mean, again, these are Johnny Miller, who's already established. Lee Trevino, already very established guys, not prone to hyperbole. It's, it kind of reminds me of when we found that uh, article with Ishikawa and the way people talked about Rory, like the way Tiger and Ogilvy yeah. and all of them talked about Rory. is really similar to the way these all-time greats were talking about uh, Ben Crenshaw. So this is uh, just real quick on that World Open before we move on. Bec- and this is of the same kind of vein. So it's kind of a dud missing the big guys and Crenshaw makes it it's like the great thing about a Crenshaw is that he gives golf an instant new hero said Maurer, who is the organizer of the event. We need more and then it won't be so important that you don't have Nicholas around. So he's kind of viewed as this like Nicholas replacement um, and giving that event juice. All right. All right. So you, you, want, you want to get you into want, the, the, the next big uh, Crenshaw storyline? What's that? The near misses. Okay. Can we just do Ben's Rens real quick? Because yeah. this was a oh, big yeah. part yeah. of this. Yeah. This was in the Jenkins article. Yeah. Like so he's already on the on the tour. There's this there's a reason they talk about Nicholas the game and Palmer the personality, right? He was like this instant marketable face, the mop of hair they talk about. And he had women following him everywhere. A lot of blondes. And they were called Ben's bunnies initially. And then at some point, they were called Ben's Wrens, in which he said, Wrens is funnier than bunnies, said Crenshaw. Uh, and even, I think, one guy in, uh, I think it might have been the World Open, it's, it's something like, uh, it's like, I'll take the leftover, I don't mind finishing second to him, and I'll take the leftover Wrens. <laughs> something, <laughs> I forget who said that. I'm happy to finish second to him, everyone. I'm happy to finish second to him every week and pick up his cast off girls. So he's, uh, he's, this is like his, you know, charm, charisma, appeal. Some golfers have it built in. This is Jenkins. Again, a Texas legendary Texas writer in Jenkins writing about a legendary Texas golfer. He's going to be drawn to him. Some golfers have it built in like a Palmer or Lee Trevino and others acquire it as Nicholas and Hogan did by winning. Crenshaw and Daly has a built-in Palmer style, but he appears to be starting out with even more golfing ability than Palmer had. Um, I don't know. That's that's it. The Ben's Renz thing was just a big part of the whole the mania around him, he, in addition to his amateur record. He married very early, and he married a, a girl that was 18 at the time, or 17. Yeah. Well, one article said she was 17, which, you know, per you know, had my radar up. And then another said she was 18. This later said she was 18. So. She was a high school senior though. Cause she skipped yeah. prom, you know, yep. and, and yep. just became, you know, the, it, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff about like how the life of a tour wife is not, especially at this time, not glamorous. I mean, you're just essentially on, on their schedule and, and every waking day is about golf. So he gives as many autographs 
uh, as he gives, along with addresses and phone numbers. That's what Jenkins said. Unbelievable. All right, let's get into the near messes you're talking about. All right, 75 U.S. Open. He, Medina. He is tied for the lead on the 71st hole, long par three at Medina, hits two iron into the water, ends up uh, making double bogey, misses out on a playoff between Lou Graham and uh, John Mahaffey. Yep. So this was two not, iron. Not a uh, not a great U.S. Open per Dan, Dan, uh, Dan Jenkins. He, he does not like this U.S. Open at all. I, had uh, Medina had many or any? Yeah, they had prior to this. They oh, had few. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, it was. Uh, he he wrote a pretty uh, vapid uh, intro to the, to the. Uh, <laughs> to, the, to the piece about uh lou graham's win who's 75 kind of... u.s open dan jenkins yeah so uh so that uh that was his first miss then he he finished uh he had the 54 hole lead at the 77 masters this is after his great year where he has uh four wins in 76 he holds the 54 hole lead at the masters uh doesn't get it done uh, 79, he's tied for the lead at the Open Championship on the 71st hole, makes a double. 79 PGA, he loses to uh, to Graham, Graham in a David, uh, Graham. David Graham, the Australian great player, in a playoff where Graham makes putts of 25 feet, 15 feet in the playoff to stay alive, yeah. and then he wins wins on the third hole. But important to note, Graham made a double on 18 to force yeah. the playoff. He made he shot sixty five with a double with on double. eighteen. Crenshaw had a great quote about that. He was you know yeah. pretty gracious in defeat. He's like, you know, he got snake bitten in the playoff when Graham made a twenty five and fifteen footer. He's like, but I can't imagine losing. Here's his quote: I don't, I don't like second uh, worth a damn, but I shouldn't have been in the playoff. David will be remembered as a man who shot a sixty five on the last day of a major championship with a double bogey, and that's incredible. This is right after he lost a playoff for his major what? championship. And he's already at this point, like, is he ever going to win? He's starting to get this, like this pressure building. Incredible quote. And not just a playoff where like he played like shit. He got beat by a guy who came back on him with a 25 footer and a 15 footer to keep extending it. Yeah. Like the 25 really footer was for Carr, And then the yep. 15 footer was for birdie after Crenshaw already had a birdie in, in. Tucked it. So. one quick thing so you talked about medina how he hit the two iron short in the water on the 71st hole and lost missed the playoff by a shot he won the bing crosby he won pebble the next year and he was like going toe-to-toe with nicholas 76 and uh or i'm sorry he wasn't going nicholas started nicholas shot like an 82 in the final round but he was started on the lead but he got the 17 and he was thinking about that medina shot and he pulled like an extra, like two extra clubs. He was like, I figured I couldn't hit it in the ocean. <laughs> After coming up short on the 71st hole in Medina, he takes like, you know, he hit a five iron at 17 at Pebble and then wins Bing Crosby. So he's winning on the tour during all these close calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a little snake bitten by, by some of these playoffs. So that's what I didn't know. So like all these runner ups is not top tens and spotlighting a lot of these guys. There are, we see a lot of top tens, which is definitely an achievement. But these were, you know, the trophy on his club on the 70th hole or 71st hole, really late in the game. 
Yeah, so, so 76 Masters he finished. So that U.S. Open he finishes third, tied for third. 76 yeah. Masters runner-up. Um, 78 uh, Open runner-up. 79 Open runner-up. 79 PGA, which was three weeks after the Open, runner-up. And then yep. he has uh, a runner-up in the 83 Masters. Which it's unbelievable. So it's a savvy. This is look at his open championship run, which I'm kind of surprised he didn't win, which I think he probably would have won something. He goes 77 T5, 78 T2, 79 T2, 83rd. I mean, like a four year run there where ball bounces one way or another, he probably went bags a win. What was it? The uh, Troon? He made a double on the 71st hole? Mm hmm. And, and that Lytham? You know, he was tied on the seventy first hole. Yeah, you know, hit it into the bunker. So like, yeah, or hit it into the heather, double bogey at Lytham on the seventy first hole, and same thing at True. Kind of incredible. So many, so many close calls. Should so, we get to the breakthrough? Or, yeah. Or you, well, you eighty. And so then eighty three Masters, he finishes t second. The year before eighty four, when he finally breaks through. So he yep. shoots sixty eight on Sunday to beat Tom Watson by two shots. And uh, guess who was leading heading into the final round? Tom Kite, Texas brethren, Texas rival friends. It's still a little awkward, right? I think they're like good friends now. No, now. Yeah, but I mean, at this point, 84, it's still like, you know, uh, not the closest. I think it seems more on Kite's end, right? Guy who's just frustrated. All right, so so 1984 Masters, he wins finally. This, you know, we're talking 11 years after he won turned pro, and had all the hype and, and had several close calls. Obviously, it wasn't like he'd been playing poor golf. Ton of close calls. A, already a very stout, highly rated player on the PGA Tour. It's just like, will the major come? And he wins the 84 Masters. Goes it kind 60, of kind of reminds me of Phil. That's not bad. Yeah, Phil, like, legendary amateur, wins as an amateur on the PGA Tour. Extraordinary amateur, and then just is just snake bitten in majors for a decade. Yeah, it's a good comp. So he goes 67, 72, 70, 68 on Sunday to win the 84 Masters. I watched a little bit of this final round, and I thought it was interesting. Musburger starts is hosting it, starts as like, with uh, setting the scene, he goes a golfer by the name of Nick Faldo. Like this is still there were forty seven players I think on the weekend playing, and like Faldo, he made the seventy seven Ryder Cup. He's been like he's been a pretty great player already on the Euro Tour, but like this American audience, all these guys aren't necessarily in the Masters. Like a golfer by the name of Nick Faldo. It's eight nineteen eighty four. Well, this was the time where the only way you get into the Masters is if you right. if you win the European Tour Order of Barrett. Yep. So we talked about all these close calls, and you know he's in what the second to last group, maybe one mm-hmm. group ahead of second kite. second to last group. Um, and they talked. Jenkins talked about on Sunday he was the most popular golfer at the Masters since Arnold Palmer. Just so he's had those close calls, he's this kind of good looking charismatic person and the crowds just starts going nuts for him do you want to get into any other any of the other scene that the people around him there were a lot of gunners around him lots of gunners lie some mark lie not necessarily 
a gunner. I, I think that Jenkins, uh, I have a tidbit from the Jenkins uh, article that, he, I mean, it sums up just like five times he had been a, a runner up in a major, including last year's Masters won by Seve by Asteros, while other players who were less talented and surely less popular had celebrated into the night. But this time he looked all week long like a young man with a purpose. And what he did in the last round of Augusta was make it all of the good, good things happen to him for for a change. He played the best golf of his life from tee to green, avoided every ca- catastrophe, and when he had to, he called on Little Ben, the best club in his bag. So I think the big thing here was that people started to say, like, this is where people started to doubt his swing, where they were saying, like, it went from the greatest swing they've ever seen to, oh, it's too long, he, it produces loose shots under pressure, and in this major, he really like buckled down. And in 82, he had had a horrible year. It was his worst year as a pro. And he had started yeah. to really doubt his swing. And he went back to Austin for like three weeks. People thought he was going to quit the game. And, right. and he went back to Austin for three weeks. And like they just went back to just trusting the, his swing. Yeah, this, that 80, 82, what he, he fell off a, a cliff, right? Yeah. People were telling me all kinds of things to try and help, he says, but then it was going in one ear out the other. Golfer always looks for quick cures, patch up one little part of his game, so better for one week, one day, one shot. I'll be on the practice tee, and I see somebody coming toward me, I think he's going to say something about my swing. I'll just go to the other end of the practice tee. I was a basket case. So 82. He, he only finished, he only had two top 10s in, in 1982 on the tour, which... Like to give you an idea, the years leading up to '82, he had, he he had eight, ten, and nine top tens with wins in all those years, and then '82 he has two top tens, no wins. Just a little bit about the searching too. Um, this is a great. I mean, it's very different from Bryson or even Clampett, obviously with the golfing machine, Faldo breaking it down with Ledbetter. He talks about how he got back to winning this '84 Masters. That kind of quality of play he goes i haven't thought about my swing one iota after all those years i was determined to aim more consistency to allow consistently to allow my instincts and my muscles to work take instinct away from golf and there's nothing you can't play any kind of shot how can you chip over a bunker that's 40 yards away how can you hit a ball in a wind all that stuff you can't do it by mechanics and this is just like, he's like a feel guy. People were getting at him about his long, loose, loose swing. He was just like, this is a game of instinct. And and Pennick said this to him. Harvey said this to him. Uh, he goes, Ben Hogan didn't have the prettiest swing in the world, but Ben Hogan knew his game better than anyone else knew theirs. And, and get back to your game, play it, live it, do not change it. And it, and it hit home, Crenshaw said. He goes to 84 Masters, he wins. He goes, so- I can live with myself now. So we got through those those basket case years, quote. So at Austin Golf Club, uh, Crenshaw grew up playing Austin Country Club. At Austin yeah. Golf Club, there are there's no yardage on any sprinkler heads. Interesting. Um, and my my rangefinder didn't have the battery died <laughs> when I played there. Was it on meters? No, okay. no, it, it died. <laughs> died. So I was completely blind. But that's like how Crenshaw grew up playing with no yardages. He wouldn't look. He was all feel. So here at at. Austin Golf Club, he doesn't have any yardages on the because he thinks player it should be feel based. Okay, fantastic. That's awesome anecdote. All right, eighty four Masters. So he, he had that basket case years. He's back to doing it all by feel, and he, you know, again, 
According to Jenkins, like people always give him, he's the greatest putter of all time. Little Ben this, little Ben that. But like what he was really proud of and what Jenkins tried to highlight in his game story was like this was done by playing golf shots, tee to green. Uh, like he he w- was stri- striping it. And of course, there were birdies. Like the putter came in handy. And the big highlight is he made a 60-foot birdie on the 10th hole. I think Bob Murphy was on the broadcast, said it was the greatest putt he'd ever seen. He made a 12-foot birdie at the 12th. And then he, uh, a 15-footer to save par at 14. I, I watched him, I watched him on 14. He like hooked it pretty hard at the top level on the left side of the green. He's like cursing, pissed off. And then his lag, like, where, how are you going to lag it? It's a front yeah. right, way down. Like, maybe it was a good lag. Probably was a good lag. Maybe not for him. But, and then he makes the 15-footer, and, like, Faldo's, like, shaking his head on 14. Um, go ahead. It looks like you want to talk. No, uh, I think it, that it was a great way to win. Like, it was a great way to win because he just he played better than everybody and just didn't have anything bad happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think he, he talks... Uh, I've put too much pressure on myself. There's no question about it. And this is from Jenkins. I love golf and golf history. I've dreamed of winning major championships. I've wondered when it was ever going to happen to me. I'd thought two years ago that it would never happen. I guess you can say this is more of a relief than anything. Wow. Golf is the hardest game in the world to play well. And as soon as you start thinking you're somebody else or somebody special, it'll teach you a lesson. Even the golf historian Crenshaw recalled words of Bobby Jones and quoted him. You swing your best when you have the fewest things to think about. Amazing. Uh, Just another thing about the back nine. He laid up on 13. Yeah. He's like, I'm, I think he, he he was too clear of kite. He saw, he looked back, saw kite had hit it in the water at 12. Then he thought he saw Billy Joe Patton in the crowd at like the corner at 13. And, Patton, obviously, it was best amateur chance to win it and hit it in the water on 13 and 15. And he thought he saw Patton, like, up somewhere on the corner. I don't know if it was in the crowd or it was, like, a walking official, whatever it was. Um, and he decided to lay up on 13 and made his par. He birdied 15, I want to say. Um, and and beat, beat Watson by two. It was just interesting. Like, it was a loaded group around him. And Jenkins wrote about that, um, saying, you know, he was... Eight players were within four shots of kite. 18 players were within six strokes of lead to start it. And this was after they finished up on Sunday. Big rain on Saturday. They had to come out and play Sunday morning. Um, you know, kite was at 207, lie at 208, Crenshaw, Faldo, and Graham were at 209, and Watson, who was at 210, he got in the clubhouse, as was Larry Nelson. So, like a lot of major championship power uh, ahead of him. So, and Crenshaw had yet to win it. So, and he just kind of. He took it by the throat. There was some, they're like, eh, he's still got to play 18. And he just kind of made a clean par to, to, to hang on against Watson, who, who was a major championship caliber player at that point. Anything else on 84 Masters? You want to talk about the divorce? Because this was happening, yeah, this happened. as it was going on. Um, it, here's Jenkins. It is an awkward thing to discuss now, but the best thing Crenshaw had going for him was peace of mind. It may have been the result of his putting his marital discord out of his life. His roommates most of the week were country and western stars, the Gatlin brothers, and not his wife, Polly. Lon admired as one of the tour's prettiest wives. Jenkins loved writing about the wives. Oh, yeah. The, the new Masters champion Especially and Polly. couples. <laughs> yeah. 
Polly, who is in the Virgin Islands, are separated, headed for a divorce that has been on again, off again during the past few years of Crenshaw's turbulent career. Polly and Ben were the Hollywood couple of the tour. She let she was the lead Wren, a gorgeous blonde who married Ben when she was 17 and tried to learn as much about Harry Varden as she knew about the Rolling Stones. She gave up college proms for a guy who put it on hotel carpets. And so perhaps from the beginning, this tour marriage wasn't going to be an easy one. So she filed for divorce, I think, in Greensboro when he was in Greensboro a week or two before the Masters. And but it was like a totally amicable divorce. There was a one article I read about how CBS came to do like a a story on his master's win, like at his home in tech Austin, like a week or two, maybe a month later. And Polly was there and like Ben and his parents and Polly agreed that she probably shouldn't be in the interview, but Polly wanted to stay there and sat off camera and wanted to hear him talk about winning. Like it was like still very friendly, amicable divorce. But apparently, according to Jenkins, like it added to the sort of peace of mind of the week. Uh, anything else on 84 Masters you want to talk about? That's it, that's it I think. So 85. Wait, real quick, though. Can I just say? Yeah. There was a reason why it was so popular as Palmer. Like he had the most friends on the PGA Tour. Like so many friends. Everyone loved him. And they had this big dinner for him in Austin the week, I think a week later. Um, he is... His grace through his lawn ordeal, all these close calls, as he has carried increasingly the heavy burden of his own and others' expectation, has inspired more admiration than most golfers, no matter how successful, can expect in a lifetime. His agony when he was on the golf course was palpable, even through the filter of a television camera, but he always left it there. The blame for his failures remained in the only place an honest golfer can put it, not in the rough or a caddy's error or nature's heartless whims, but inside his own tortured head. For his opponents and the rest of us, there was always a big Texas grin. Crenshaw seemed sorrier for what he was putting his friends through than he was himself. That was a decade of close major wins. A little bit with Phil, like the decade with close major wins. And he he quotes, you know, he quotes Bobby Jones at St. Andrews just talking about friendship and how many friends on tour have helped him through it. And he finally gets his 84 Masters. All right. All right. Moving on. 85. 82 was the worst year of his career to date. 85 becomes the worst next. He, no top tens. And yep. they're rapidly losing weight, and, and nobody knows what's going on. He doesn't understand why what's happening. He's got no energy. Um, almost ends his career. And it turns out he's diagnosed with Graves' disease. Um, which is a thyroid um, disease. Uh, so Diaz, in, in an SI article um, after he won the the Masters, and by the time yeah. he had overcome it two years later, he was a gaunt, less powerful player. So this really affects him. And his putting kind of went a little bit in well, 85, too. So, so this is... Uh, this is... Crenshaw from that New York Post Post article about Jose Reyes. Yeah. I can remember how I felt and it was not good. Very jittery and kind of a, and kind of a nervous feeling. Crenshaw said it wasn't until after 4 or 5 months of experiencing symptoms that he was diagnosed. After visiting the University of Texas Nuclear Medicine Department, Crenshaw began taking radioactive iodine, iodine as a treatment right. for his uh hyperthyroidism because of his condition Crenshaw's golf game declined I didn't play well at all Crenshaw said 
It affected my physical being. Specifically, Crenshaw found his short game hurting. For putting or chipping, his nervousness and jitters made it difficult to find his touch. Crenshaw's health eventually improved because of the iodine. Uh, After three or four months, uh, once taking the iodine and subsequent tests, I started to feel like myself again, he said. Wow. Um, This, like, that was it. Like, that was the most perplexing part about, so the year after he wins the Masters, there's a Barry McDermott article. He's like 144th putting, whatever putting statistic. Um, You know, he, he was like missing all these cuts he according to McDermott folks had taken to calling him mental Ben instead of gentle Ben. Um, and he's just like, he was throwing little Ben to the ground at Memorial. He kicked little Ben, (laughs) um, his magic wand. And and he was just missing a lot of cuts. Putting had gone on him while we're on the subject of health. And you talk about the Graves disease. He had a broken toe. Did you get that part? I didn't see that for years undiagnosed and this was a big problem in 95 when he won he had like a, a toe issue that bothered him for years and he says it's from 1979 when he kicked a garbage can or a, a bucket coming off the green at colonial Unbelievable. and it bothered him he had a sore toe for like a decade it was like really acute 95 um it, it was claimed it was characterized as a broken toe later he walked he, he said it himself Ninety seventy nine. I walked off the green and kicked a big trash barrel so hard that I'm still paying for it. I've had surgery on the big toe on my right foot once and probably will again because the toe is arthritic. I've developed some back problems from walking on the side of my foot because of the toe. That was going into like 95 they were talking about that. But he kicked the can, he said, in 1979. Yeah. So that and the Graves disease. 85, is, you know, it's gone. Putting's gone. He's really struggling. Um, All right. Anything so else? He, Go ahead. Masters, Masters. He led on the back nine in eighty-seven. Bogeyed seventeen and missed a playoff by a shot. Um, eighty eighty-seven Ryder Cup. He lost a really big singles match to Eamon Darcy. Yep. Uh, he was one up with two to play. So he started. Then people started to give him this rep of he couldn't win. You know, he couldn't win the big thing. He was just kind of a choker. 87, he lost the playoff to TC Chen at Riviera. Mm-hmm. And, and Riley called him. Ben Crenshaw may go down as the most loved player, yet the most pathetic playoff performer in history. He's O for his career. He said, my playoff record is pitiful. I have no idea why. He talks about that one at Riviera. Chen made some putt on top of him to force extra holes. And he's like, he just put his head in his hands. He like knew it was done. <laughs> like missed a four footer and lost the Riviera. So again, struggling. Some close calls, but but struggling. That's eighty seven. Eighty nine Masters. He bogeys eighteen to miss the playoff by a shot. So you know these oh. are these are just <laughs> killers. So many more chances. Um, uh, go ahead. So in in ninety three, I found this uh, this quote about his golf about his best golf. Um, and I think this was, I, God, I can't remember. I'm sorry. I didn't write this. Down. No, you're good. Let's go. He, he kept his pain private and never became bitter. I really do feel in my heart that in high school and college, I played my best golf. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe I didn't think I just did, but it doesn't bother me anymore that I didn't turn out to be whatever. I think this was this was the Diaz um, ninety five article. article in SI. Yep. 
Yep, I played my best golf. I, I mean, think about that though, and we may be seeing that with Spieth. I don't know. Like, obviously, Crenshaw had a great pro career after this, but thinking that you played your best golf when you were 18, 19, 20, and then the expectations with having to do that on the front end, the burdens that come with that. And I think that's what they talked about with the 95 Masters. Yeah. It's a, in um, 92, he wins the Western Open. That was right after his clubs got stolen. Um, and there was Oh, a- I forgot. <laughs> go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. I forgot to mention, in 84 Masters, there was a story, I think Bamberger said he went to Palmetto, like a Palmetto Golf Club after... I can't remember if it was before the after the third round or after his first round, but during the tournament, he goes to Palmetto just to kind of check it out, like you know, soak in the history. I don't know if he played. He may have played. He did play. I'm not sure. I think he, he loved did it. Play he, he was entranced yeah. by the Stanford White Clubhouse. He just is, he so you routinely go in in like in mid tournaments, like he yeah. play around and then he go hightail it to a course nearby. I've got a yeah. couple tidbits on that. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, Chicago Golf Club. He's an honorary member there. Um, okay. And uh, the club historian, uh, John Moran, great guy, uh, gr- actually caddied there growing up. Okay. Um, and um, this is John Moran caddies for him in 1980. July 4th, 1980. I cart caddied for, for Stick, Don Stickney, who's a local legend. Yep. Skinny guy played played golf at Ohio State with Weisskopf, um, Stick, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Weisskopf, Ed Sneed, who just you know it was off of his collapse in the '79 Masters in an exhibition for the members. Stick not only played at Ohio State with Weisskopf, but apparently Weisskopf had lived in Stick's house for a period of time during college. Anyway, when they finally arrived from their tournament rounds at Butler. They jumped directly on the first tee. Ben blocked his opening tee shot into the far right rough up towards the 18th tee. In Chicago golf lore, this is where he played a mulligan and happily went on to shoot 62 from that ball. Having been there, however, I know that while he hit the second ball that someone flipped to him, Ben played his original ball, hit a four iron to the green. Newer members might be surprised to know that by July 4th, the then two-inch bluegrass rough would have been burned out. He had a beautiful lie, hit a beautiful uh, shot with his first tee ball. He finished 3-3-3 to break the course record by two shots. This is the morning after playing Butler? No, the afternoon after playing Butler. Yeah, that's what I mean. He had already played 18 at Butler Uh uh, in tournament golf, and he goes to... Wow. 1980. The balls used all four players that day are now in the history room. Uh, I've got a picture of it on the website if you search Chicago golf. And um, but he so he breaks the course record by two shots. And but because of the he hit the second ball off the tee, it's not the official course record. Got it. But he played the original ball. Four right. Wow, that's a good story. Um, another thing. So. Up until Ben Crenshaw in the like mid to late eighties, Crystal Downs was just like a hidden gem. Nobody knew about Crystal Downs. Yeah. So, um, it, it, Chris, this is from the Alistair McKenzie site, uh, society site. Crystal Downs was often referred to as Michigan's hidden gem by a small group of avid golfers who recognized the significance of the course's heritage. 
So this crystal down to Alistair McKenzie, Perry Maxwell design in Northern Michigan. That's like one of the yeah. 15 best courses in the country. Um, and thrilled at annual pilgrimages, of course, experience the speedy undulating greens, rhythmic routing, sparkling lake views, and challenging play. The lack of notoriety changed in 1986, though, when a young Ben Crenshaw took the day off from the Buick Open, being held 230 miles south <laughs> at Warwick Hills in <laughs> Grand Blanche, uh, uh, Michigan, to take a private jet to Frankfurt and experience Crystal Downs with a local acquaintance. Not only did Ben go on to win that year's Buick Open, but he followed Holy. his victory with public comments and articles about the great time at Crystal Downs and his admiration for the course's design. By 1989, by, fueled by greater publicity, expanding interest in, the, in golf, and good economic times, Crystal Downs reached full membership and be, began to accumulate a, a substantial waiting list. Wow. So, Palmetto, during the Masters... Chicago golf during was it the Western Western Open, Open. I assume, and during the Buick he's going up to Crystal Downs and kind of brings not back on the map. It was always no, it wasn't you know, on the map. Yeah, it wasn't in any rankings or anything until oh, right. The, I was, the architecture crowd knew of its importance. Some Crenshaw, yeah, like he okay. told Tom Doak about it. Like it's a kind of crazy. Like there's all this, but two of those tournaments he won. Yeah. Palmetto. Well, the Masters. The, yeah, yeah, Masters. And the Masters. Yeah, Masters and the Buick. He wins the week that he goes on his expeditions during the tournament. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, all right. Should we get to... What, you, what, you have anything on the early 90s before we go to 95 Masters? I feel like we've... Go for it. You got it. You look yeah. like you, you're... Well, I was just going to say, you know, he's a history buff. He just, This is kind of... He's yeah. obsessed with courses, architecture, golf history. Bobby Jones, quoting Bobby Jones all the time. One other thing I picked up, he's also he was also a bird watcher. Yeah, saw that. He courts ridicule on the tour whenever he gets excited <laughs> yeah. over spotting a scarlet uh Tanager at, at uh Muirfield Village or a bald eagle at Pontevedra. So just Interesting guy. He That's, talked about like his buddy was into it or something. His high school friend. He just got into it on the golf course. Maybe his teammate or something. But now he takes he took shit for it on tour when he's like get excited about seeing a bird. There's another Jenkins article that just talked about. I think one of the things with Crenshaw was he was just such an interesting guy off uh, off the pot uh, off the course. You know. Yeah, seems like a real contemplative. That's why he was popular. He he liked to have a good time too. You know. Yeah. He was he was but, known as a uh, as somebody that that would throw back a few and he'd show up well, at the course with a cigarette and you know right well that's the whole thing like you want someone who seems whip smart and appreciation of history contemplative and, and like friend but also like not just a, a pent up sort of nerd right he had fun too he kind of had the whole package uh, as a person it seems like um, all right so we moved to ninety five. Anything else? Uh, you hear your else. bird watching? 95, of course, like, he, he, his game isn't what it was, right? This is not, this is far from the early 70s, the mid 80s, you know, 95, he wins the Masters. I did find an interesting old Rosefort article about how he had shunned the vast irons. Oh, the Corey Pavin. Yeah. 
Grady Little Bruins iron. Yeah. One player who can't be accused of misleading the public is Ben Crenshaw. So this was on a, equipment. When Cleveland Classics, whose irons he had played and endorsed, went to went the radically shaped Vass iron in 94, Crenshaw, the traditionalist, just couldn't make the switch. He went back to an old set of Walter Hagen's, and his bag is generic. No logo on it. In golf, it's a, as rare as a double eagle. So he goes to 90. I don't know. I think that was the case in 95 Masters because the article's from 95. He, he shuns the Vass and has Hagen irons. One um, funny thing on that, I just yeah. I just forgot. Uh, in, in the Western Open that he won, the 92, his strap yeah. broke on his bag. So that he was using a dub stread, like a Coghill dub stread bag that like barely could fit his uh, his his rain suit. So his caddy's oh. like this little carry bag he wins the ninety two uh, Western Open with. They just bought in the pro shop or whatever. Yeah, amazing. Uh, okay, so we get to ninety five Masters. Um, he comes to it. He three. He'd missed three cuts in his last four starts. He hadn't broken seventy in two months. He was 69th on the PGA Tour in putting. This is from Rick Riley. Uh, but then on Tuesday before the tournament, his longtime Augusta caddy, Carl Jackson, a man who would, need a two, who, who would need two woofer implants just to be considered quiet, said out of the blue, put the ball a little back in your stance, Ben, and you got to turn your shoulders more. So he was. this is like the toe thing. He said he was like compensating for the hurt toe. So Carl Jackson's giving, he hadn't played well. Carl Jackson's giving him swing tips. Um, after hitting four balls, Crenshaw, Crenshaw said he was suddenly striping it again. Four balls. I've never had a confidence transformation like that in my life, said Crenshaw. Um, so that's some of the stuff around his game. You want to get to the obvious. Yeah, the obvious, Harvey like, personal. Yeah, dies um, on April 2nd. The kite and Sunday. Him. Yeah. Allegedly, Pennick clapped for Davis Love won, I think, Zurich or whatever the event in New Orleans was. And Love's dad, Davis Love Jr., was obviously a Pennick protege. Allegedly, clapped for DL3's win and then passed away on that Sunday. Uh, go ahead. So he, he flies, him and Kite fly back to Augusta um, from the funeral service on Wednesday night. They go Wednesday morning to Pennick's funeral. Fly from Augusta and then back to Augusta again Wednesday night. They said he went to the range that that night after the funeral and was like hitting balls. And, you know, it was like late Wednesday night, sort of like cool setting. He'd obviously just buried his like close friend and mentor. Um, Carl was there. They just said like the scene was really cool. Late night before the master starts, day of the funeral, just kind of cool. Um, cool scene or... or not cool, but you know what I mean. A mystical scene, so to speak. Um, and then, like, the whole thing, the whole week was that Harvey was there because, you know, it ended up being Crenshaw and Davis Love coming down the stretch at the tournament. Right, right, right. He talks about, um, you know, at, at the service, Pennick service, Tinsley Pennick, Harvey's son, took his father's old wooden Gene Saracen putter Sarazen putter and saved it for Crenshaw. It was the same putter that on the last Sunday in March, Pennick lying in a hospital bed uh, in his bedroom at home had commanded Crenshaw to get from the garage. So like, so, so Crenshaw goes and gets the putter from his garage, brings it back to Pennick laying in his bed and, and shows it to him. He shows, checks the grip, has Crenshaw do the grip. 
and, and checking Crenshaw's grip from his hospital bed with, with Sarazen's old putter. And he goes, just trust yourself. Pretty cool. Like really this is cool. the month before he dies. Um, so Crenshaw goes back to Augusta Wednesday night. You know, he's just like drained. You know, he just buried him. He's hitting balls, getting these swing tips from Carl. And he says like the next morning he just woke up and it was just like, there was a calmness. This was his wife. There was a calmness to him all week that I've never seen before. Um, and then every break went his way, <laughs> which his wife, Julie, um, who he met in the gallery at Riviera, I believe. That was his second wife, Julie. I want to say it was late 80s, 89, 87, a somewhere Ren. in there. A, a Ren. A late Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Julie, who seems awesome, by the way. She seems amazing based on the stories I read. Just like there was a Shipnuck article this year about how they were sipping wine out of the plastic masters souvenir cups. And she's like cracking about rewatching the 95 master. She seems just like fantastic person. Um, so Crenshaw, you know, Julie starts calling him Harvey bounces all week. So he hit it, I guess one in the middle of the bunker on eight. I think it was Thursday early in the week that popped out. It was like a bunk of balls. Never pop out of that bunker. Happened, uh, I think, on two on Sunday. Yeah, he like hooked one hard into the trees. Right? Was it? Was it left? He hooked it. That hit. The, I hit yeah. out of the trees and then bounced into the middle of the fairway. It was like probably gonna be a double bogey. Goes in the middle of the fairway. Several of those things where the, like so he has this calmness and uh, the, all these Harvey bounces of which Julie kept calling them. And, and here's here's uh, Riley. What's weird is that this does not start out as Crenshaw's week at all. The first of two days of the tournament belonged to a 19-year-old dervish known as Tiger Woods, the U.S. amateur champ playing his first Masters and only the fourth black American to compete in the event. He changed the face of the tournament literally. This year, you did not have to look for a white caddy in overalls to find a black face. They were everywhere in Woods' teaming galleries. They were there to take a sip of golf history. So Tiger, they talk about Tiger like hitting sand wedges into 18. And just like this is couples and DL3 are like, this is a different kind of game he's playing in terms of his distance and that was like he stole the show as an amateur the first two days of crenshaw's crenshaw's win mm-hmm. um you know anything else you know before we get to like the finals on sunday um our theme of little people riley bashing on little people the the what leader there? was brian henniger oh yeah yeah. Would the yeah. winner be Henniger, a man so small and webelo face that one <laughs> webelo webelo I don't know webelo yeah. face that yeah. that once at the Western Open he drove up to the valet parking in his courtesy car car and Sue Price Nick Price's wife got in the front seat thinking her driver had arrived. <laughs> one more thing on Tiger. Apparently, like, he was really downplaying Augusta, and they didn't know if this was, like, the race thing or just trying to be too cool. You know, from Riley, he goes, when he asked if he was awed or thrilled by Augusta, he shrugged and said, it's just another tournament. And by, what about Magnolia Lane? It was just a short drive. I thought it would be longer. And he goes, what about the crow's nest? He goes, I don't know. I came in late, threw my bag down, and went right to sleep. So Tiger being, like, too cool with the press, but apparently, like, he was just... Loving it. it was like sneaking around the clubhouse trying to take in all the history snuck into the champions locker room. All right. Sunday, 95 masters, 23 players representing nine green jackets were crammed into a seven shot bunch. Um, but by the end, all of which three players were left in a green jacket raffle, the red hot pairing of love and Norman. So 
I mean, DL3 and Norman. Big, big. Guys, I think guys DL- that had some Sunday issues. Yeah. And DL3, I think, got in this tournament by winning the Zurich or New Orleans. I think he was kind of on a tough streak and needed to win to get in the week before. Um, so it's Crenshaw, Love, and Norman by the end. Those uh, guys 40- were like the, the mailman. Yeah. <laughs> Crenshaw was 45 minutes behind them. You love your NBA stuff. They were tied at 12 under. Love carried a seven iron too far on 16. He goes, sometimes you wonder if things aren't meant to be. That shot went four or five yards farther than I should be able to hit and stayed up on the top of the hill. Um, he three putted. On the 4-4, 17th, Norman had the easiest 106-yard sandwich you could want, and he blew it 40 feet to the left of the hole and three putted. What in the world was going on? And Crenshaw, like, so Love and Norman just open it up for him. Crenshaw afterwards says, I believe in fate. I don't know how it happened. I don't. Um, Love, by the way, his 13 under 275 was the lowest score not to win the Masters, which I think we talked about on the Love throwback last week. Uh, Anything else on this win? I didn't have a lot on the actual round other than Crenshaw like getting some bounces. And there's the Harvey story. Yeah, that that, that was kind of it. I think Diaz in that article he wrote the week after said, well, it, it, I think like, so this is his last win as a pro. Yeah. Oh, uh, one quick though. He made only five bogeys and not a single w, yeah. double the whole week. So it's not like we have this 60 footer on 10, like an 84, but he just kind of tee to green, kept the putter going and he talked about how he was couldn't believe it. It's like I've never made only five bogeys in an event in my life. So go ahead. This is Diaz. Uh, Diaz. While Crenshaw would be embarrassed by the comparison, he has followed the model of his I- idol, Bob Jones, of whom Herbert Warren Wind once wrote, "As a young man, he was able to stand up to just about the best that life can offer, which isn't easy." And later, he stood up with equal grace to just about the worst. Kind of amazing. This is a Bill Fields article that was recent, so he's looking back. I can't believe to this day I played that well on that particular week. As I've said many times, it's unexplainable. I played the whole week with only five bogeys. I've never done that in a major. I had a very even keel attitude um, and more fields. The themes of that week have been well documented. Jackson giving them tip. Crenshaw using his friend and business manager Scott Sayers' Cleveland facsimile of Little Ben. So he used his friend's putter that was like a facsimile of little ben and you know his largely dormant season came to life and they, they talk about him at the rental house on the sunday his, his brother charlie crenshaw comes in uh, and they play basketball in the driveway that morning and, and before crenshaw left for the course for the final round he went to the end of the driveway and, and before they leave he goes to the end of the driveway just stood thinks and like thinking about what happened plotting the day he, he remembers clearly the lone figure standing at the end of the driveway thinking about Pennick and, and what could happen that Sunday. All right. All right. Anything else? I think at 95. That's, that's it for 95. His last win. Last, last pro win. win. And then uh, next big thing was the 99 Ryder Cup, the famous Brookline Ryder Cup. Maybe the worst shirts of all time, but the greatest Ryder Cup comeback of all time. That's a good point. You know, those shirts were inspired by what he wore at 95. He wore a similar 95 shirt of like Bobby Jones, like picture frames. Yeah. Of Bobby Jones. And then they used it for the Ryder Cup in 99. 
Um, we're going long here. Yeah. But well, so, I well, don't know. I think like most people know the 99 Ryder Cup story, but he was getting blasted for his early round pairings. And then they come back and, you know, then he's remembered as a great Ryder Cup captain. It's like what we talk about with Ryder Cup captaincy. If you win, well, the- you're celebrated. If you don't, you're the worst captain ever. Yeah, this was really like the turn, like where his captains became a big deal. And the big thing was that the PGA at Medina, with the whole should they be paid, the four that wanted to be paid, Duval, yeah. Amira, Mickelson, and Woods. I mean, uh, Crenshaw made this public and got kind of, you know, the players took the heat because he made it public. And John Garrity ripped Crenshaw for this. So Crenshaw's quote is, it burns the hell out of me to listen to some of their viewpoints. Every fine player who's worth his salt has given his heart and soul to the Ryder Cup on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm personally disappointed in a couple of people. So he said that on Wednesday before the PGA at Medina. The next day, this is Garrity, you had to love Crenshaw even more the next day when he doubled the estimated number, so he's a couple people, of the miscreants and confirmed their names. Tiger, Duval, Phil, and O'Meara. By doing so, he widened the fissure between the flag waivers and the accountants on his team, <laughs> exposed as the gain of four to withering public criticism and poured kerosene on a fire the PGA of America and the PGA Tour were frantically trying to put out. That's leadership, a Chicago journalist wrote of, without a trace of irony. Well, yeah, if your definition of a good leader is General Custer at Little Bighorn. So Garrity really crushed, crushing him. What Crenshaw did was hurt professional golf. The public generally teeters between two perceptions of pro golfers, the last independent noble truth-telling rules-abiding figures in sports, or just like all the other spoiled bratty jocks who pollute the air with their whining. With his undisciplined remarks at Medina, Crenshaw tipped almost everyone into the second camp, and like the backlash was immediate. Mickelson, Chicago uh, Sun-Times, Chicago Tribune, Mickelson now outed as one of these guys who wants cash uh, or thinks they should be getting a cut to give to charity. He got blasted in the Chicago Tribune for a self-important act. Here's a caddy in the article quoted. He puts on any more weight, an anonymous caddy was quoted as saying, and he won't be able to get his little fat head through the Learjet of his and it have to fly commercial. And wouldn't that be a shame? So Crenshaw caught a lot of crap for sort of, I guess they had some team meeting with these behind the scenes fighting about whether they should be paid. And they're like, no one's talking about this. And Crenshaw kind of then went out and made allusions to it in his press conference and then named them the next day. And, and Garrity didn't like that because of all the backlash it sent towards Woods, Phil, uh, O'Meara, and Duvall. Duvall, I guess, was really, really hurt by it uh, more than anybody. Phil and Tiger were like, it's all right. We like Ben. He's a good leader. Uh, but Duvall seemed kind of pretty hurt by it and it motivated him to play well at, uh, at, at uh, Brookline. There was just, I read more on that, the whole pay to play thing than the actual, the cup. I mean, his Um, famous thing was, I'm a, I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about this. And, and then, you know, the flurry of winds came. One note too, this was the start of really tinkering with the course, Mm -hmm. according to Diaz. Like, so, so Crenshaw is obviously this traditionalist, um, but. You know, they talked about how like Seve would jump around in carts. He wrote, Ben Crunshaw, this year's American captain, is too smart to worry about cart speed. So with little fanfare, he's put his mind to something quite tangible that could determine the outcome of next week's Ryder Cup. He has altered the country club course in a way that's sure the most talented team wins. 
Crenshaw has had the fairways widened and the rough cut to a wispy three inches. He wants his players to attack the course with their drivers and play short irons in the country club's tiny greens. He wants to see a lot of birdies, which totally played into like Duvall and Tiger. And they talked about how like, you know, Brookline's Brahmins haven't reacted well to all this tinkering. They make it sound as if Francis we met's amateur status has been revoked. But while no one loves the old world cragginess of the country club more than Crenshaw, he knows that the Ryder Cup is too important to put the romance ahead of pragmatism. He wants Duval Love Mickelson to free freewheel and blow the doors off of it, the plotters, the European plotters. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a guy who knows architecture, but also knows this competition. Like it, there were because it, it was contrast to Oak Hill in '95, which they set up as a U.S. Open, thinking like the Euros, Seve hits it everywhere. But now they have these power hitters. And he's like, I'm going to widen the fairways. I'm going to cut the rough to three inches. It's, so. He he knows what he's you know the most the skill, the most skilled players will win when it's set up that way. Yeah, all, um, all thick rough does is just muddy the uh, the skill. I would uh, so this like I mean this is a major part of his legacy. Uh, uh, I, I liked the night before in the four seasons, the night before the comeback. Um, it was Crenshaw, his wife, all the players, their wives, his two assistant ca- captains, Texans Bill Rogers and Bruce Litsky, and George W. Bush, presidential candidate, scion of two past USGA presidents. We know all that. He read a poem about remembering the horrible massacre of the Alamo when the hopes of Texas independence from Mexico appeared dead. And yet, as every Texan knows, independence came just six weeks. A video was shown. This is Saturday night. It included highlights from each player's career and a personalized cheer by a cheerleader from each player's college. It's amazing what $64 million in Ryder Cup revenues can do, can buy, according to Bamberger. The video also included a scene from Animal House, you know, was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor, which Steve Pate loved. And, and everybody in the room was asked to speak about his Ryder Cup experience. Most said something to inspire the team. And Hal Sutton said, I believe there's more talent on the sixth floor. They were staying on the sixth floor of the four seasons than there is in the fifth. But we've got to play with more emotion. We've got to raise our fists and get the crowd into it. Um, pain. So that's what we saw all day Sunday, right? Duvall going nuts. People are getting... Like there's Americans trying to get the crowd into it. Uh, and, and, you know, one player when they were talking in the Saturday meeting said like, should we win tomorrow? Crenshaw interjected when we win tomorrow. So I just thought that scene of the Saturday night at the Four Seasons after they've lost. And Crenshaw's strategy had been questioned quite a bit. You know, the, the team of... Albira uh, benching. So, I mean, I, was I, a, I think... A it, man after your own heart with the Omira stuff. He's... <laughs> He knows golf, you know. It's uh, uh, so the yeah. So that I think that's the final kind of chapter of his his competitive career, really. Yeah, but a significant chapter. Yeah, and should we uh, talk about legacy at all? I mean, architecture wise, you have to add that it has to be a piece of this. Yeah, he's he's his core Crenshaw firm is you know could. A lot of people could put up on their Mount Rushmore of architects, like you know, in the discussion of greatest modern architect. And a real, real. I mean, you're this is your expertise, but as I understand it, like how they influenced the oh, direction. Yeah. It wasn't just like improving upon something that was thought to be good. It was changing directions, right? 
oh, was yeah. really kind of influencing direction. Him, him, uh, him he and Bill uh, Core, Tom Doak, really were the ones that pushed architecture in a new direction. And um, I think like his design, their design at Sandhills, uh, Mullen, Nebraska, Dick Youngscap, the great developer's uh, golf course, that really was the thing that kind of put a new style of architecture on the map. It became automatically one of the best courses in the world. Um, ironically, I think Bill Core told me that he was thought it was crazy when he got the call about Sandhills, like in the middle of Nebraska, but Crenshaw, he talked to Ben and Ben remembered seeing something in a national geographic about the terrain of the Sandhills and, in Nebraska. And he's like, Oh, we should go, we should go look at this. And, uh, obviously Kapalua was their first big project together, which has been a mainstay of the tour, but you know, the, uh, really great architects and, and, you know, from like an architecture standpoint would have a chance at the, at the hall of fame of architects. Um, you, so you talked a bit about core there and I, I think he's probably told this on your podcast. I read an article, about like when they first started to team up, Ron Witten went down to Barton Creek and was talking to him. I was like, what's the name of the company? And they didn't have a name. They had to think about it. And, and Crenshaw like just blurts out, Core Crenshaw. And that always had a huge impact on Core. Is like, you have like one of the greatest players, the greatest amateurs of all time, a Masters champion. I think this was mid-80s, late-80s at this point mm-hmm. when they teamed late up. Late-80s. So he'd won the Masters already. And like, it should be like, Core's like, who does that? Who first of all, who puts me first? Who even includes that, my name? It should be like Crenshaw and Associates, maybe. But he said he just blurted out Core Crenshaw, and that was the name of the design. And it kind of speaks to Ben's obviously like popularity off the course and his graciousness. And I think there's like everybody, a lot of people in architecture will say, "Oh, it's all Bill Core," but I don't think I think like there's so much with that partnership that. You don't know unless you're out there, but Ben is obviously core is more the day to day, but Ben does a lot of the editing, the visiting and, you know, visits and, and walks and talks with, with Bill. And I think there's always importance of having, you know, Ben Crenshaw probably got them a lot of jobs and opportunities early that they wouldn't have gotten, um, because of, of who he was. And I think that's something that can't be, you know, downplayed is in, in in the architecture sense like a lot of people will probably dismiss a little bit of of Ben's because uh, because Bill's obviously very heavily involved with all their projects but I think that they they underrate the influence that Ben has and the amount of you know cachet that Ben Ben brings to the table for that that partnership yeah um all right so legacy architecture amateur career uh greatest putter of all time maybe a lot of people say that and i have an amazing justin leonard quote from an alan shipnuck article this year on eight celebrating the 25th anniversary of his 95 masters win this is just fantastic on leonard you can't copy his stroke and you wouldn't want to he has a different technique on different putts he'll draw putts slice putts hit the ball on the toe to deaden the speed for him, it's all about feel. He has the best speed control I've ever seen, and that's all he cared about. Not the way it looked. It's fascinating to spend time with him because his approach is so different from everybody else who's all trying to 
they're all trying to groove the same stroke over and over. Pretty cool. Yeah, really cool. For somebody who's like the greatest putter ever, but it's like sui generis. Like it's not necessarily something you'd want to mimic. Or possible to mimic maybe. Yeah, all feel. Architecture. Authentic player. Greatest putter ever, maybe. You know, that's a subjective title. Architecture, legacy. Legacy as a player... I mean, he talks about now, he's like, I couldn't believe some of the things that were written about me. You know, the next Nicholas. Palmer's, Palmer's charisma, Nicholas's game, Jones's, you know, sense of history. It's a tricky one from the legacy standpoint because from a professional golf standpoint, I think like in my, I don't know if he gets in from just professional golf for me. Really? I just... I I think like the close calls have an impact on me. The like close he's calls so do. close to being Faldo. He's so close to having six. But I mean, you know, there's, there's doing it and then there's not having it, I guess. But what puts me over the edge, like I mean, like there just was a lot of mediocre and a, a lot of it's because of the disease. You know, there's there's stuff, but I would put it over the edge with the amateur, you know, yeah. Without a doubt, one of the five best amateur players ever. Yeah. And and then from an architecture standpoint, like overall impact on the game, huge. Steward of the game. Yeah. Like he's just a voice with the history. Like he's now, he's the ringleader. He's the leader of the Tuesday night champions dinner. Like that's been given to him um, because of his history. Like he leads the dinner. Um, I, I don't know. They... The, and they talk about that a lot. Whether it's this Hall of Fame speech or he's just known as like a guy that people defer to on what's good for the game, what's right for the game. They talked about a little bit about the Masters, you know, change, Augusta changing the course, and he was too gracious to really talk about it too much when they tiger-proofed it and all that. Um, but, yeah, he's just like a, as a voice in the game, and a lot of that's derived from his massive success early on, right? You don't just get that kind of authority to speak like that unless you are also maybe one of the greatest amateur players ever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it kind of all goes hand in hand. There's this package with him. So do you think you may not put him in on pro golf alone? He's right, on the, the other right on the border. Because, you know, it was... He won two Masters, which is, which is you know, he he's in that... Same guy, but I mean, all the close calls too. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Is it, he, he, he? He's in the low rung, the bottom rung. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right, Ben Crenshaw. Solid uh, two hours on Ben, but you know we did two hours on Lyle too, right? So we, we can two, do two hours on two hour, anybody. Two hours on Davis Love. <laughs> there we go. All right. Thank all right. you all. We'll be back Monday with a regular course of business podcast. Thanks, guys. 